Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is a special edition of Primetime Politics on CPAC. The federal government provided its economic update today, the first detailed accounting of the pandemic spending to date, and plans for future spending. It reveals a massive deficit and promises up to $100 billion in new spending over the next three years for economic and social programs after the pandemic passes. But there's no roadmap and no targets for how the government will cut spending and try to cut that deficit down. This fall economic statement outlines the Government of Canada's measures to fight and defeat COVID-19, to support Canadians through this crisis, and to rebuild Canada's economy once the virus is beaten. We will do whatever it takes to help Canadians stay healthy, safe, and solvent. We will invest in every necessary public health measure and we will support Canadian families and Canadian businesses in a deliberate, prudent, and effective way. I'll speak with the Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister, Christian Freeland, in just a moment about what's uh, really, in many ways, a bit of a mini-budget. As expected, the fiscal update promises targeted spending to help vulnerable Canadians and economic sectors and lays out more spending to help Canada recover from the pandemic. Here are the key highlights you need to know. The federal deficit is now pegged at $381.6 billion for this fiscal year, expiring next March. It's expected to drop to $29 billion over the next five years. The federal debt is pegged now at over $1.1 trillion for this year and will rise to nearly $1.4 trillion over the next five years. Economic growth as measured by real gross domestic product has dropped by 5.8% during the pandemic. The finance minister predicts it will rebound to 4.8% next year before leveling back to 1.9% five years from now. And the debt-to-GDP ratio, which has until now been the government's fiscal anchor, has risen to 50.7% and will remain over 50% for the next five years, which the government insists still gives Canada room to borrow. The economic statement lays out no fiscal anchors but promises fiscal guardrails to determine when stimulus spending to boost the economic recovery should be wound down. The finance minister proposes to spend between $70 billion and $100 billion over the next three years to manage the pandemic and boost that economic recovery, one that includes $25 billion more this year alone. The government promises a recovery that is feminist and intersectional, is the way it's put in the document. A new task force being created in the coming weeks to ensure the recovery includes more women in the workforce. There's also money sprinkled over the next five years to create a new national child care vision for Canada and $420 million to help uh, provinces train and retain early childhood educators. And there's continued spending to mitigate the impacts of the second wave of the pandemic. The government promising a $1 billion fund to help protect seniors in long-term care homes. The government's establishing a new program to guarantee private sector low interest rate loans for those hard-hit sectors of the economy, such as hotels and tourism. There's also a temporary support payment of $1,200 for each child under six in families already eligible for the Canada Child Benefit to help offset the increased costs of the pandemic. And there's also funding to fight racism, to promote diversity, and to make communities safer 
including $250 million over five years to crack down on gun crime. Well, the Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister of Canada, Christian Freeland, joins me now. Minister Freeland, uh, thanks for time to speak with me tonight. Let's jump right into this because we only have a couple of minutes. You're promising to spend between 70 and $100 billion on a plan to grow the economy over the next uh, three years. How wedded are you to that spending and, and what could throw, it, throw that spending off track? Um, great question, Peter, and great to be with you. We put that plan out there because we know that even after we have the virus under control, we are still going to have an economy that needs some help to fire at its full potential. And, you know, we have recovered a lot since the spring. Nearly 80% of jobs lost have been recovered. And that recovery might make us not fully realize just how bad the economic hit has been. And to give you a sense of that, Peter, today, when it comes to employment, we are still worse off than Canada was in the depth of the 2008-2009 financial crisis. Mm -hmm. So that's that's. That's where we are now, and that's why I know that we need a growth plan. And it was very important to me today to be transparent with Canadians, to be transparent with capital markets, that that plan was going to be there and that we were going to need to spend that money. Now, what will determine how much we have to spend? We talked about that today. And my real laser focus is going to be on jobs. We're going to look at three specific numbers. We're going to look at the employment number. We're going to look at the unemployment number. And we're going to look at hours worked. And that is going to guide us in terms of how much we need to spend. Okay. The, uh, as you know, lots of conversation today uh, as well about fiscal guardrails. What's the plan to get back to balance? And, and what's the time frame for that? So what I was just describing, um, those three economic indicators around jobs, those are the fiscal guardrails that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. And are going to be what determine how, you know, when we are done with the stimulus and growth plan. Now, when it, when that plan has been in place, when employment has recovered, that is when, as we said today, Canada will return to our traditional, prudent fiscal course, guided by fiscal anchors, which we will announce and put in place when the economy has returned to a more normal place. And, and so, so by that's what we talked about today. Right. And by definition, that would mean at some point uh, we'll be into spending cuts, correct? If, uh, if you, you see a time where employment's where you want it to be, uh, labor numbers are where you want it to be, it's time to start reining back, correct? Uh, I did not talk about cuts, Peter. And I believe that the best way to pay down our debt is through growth. Any person running a business, any person running a household knows that the way you pay off your debts the most effectively is have growing income. And that's precisely why our growth plan is going to be focused on jobs. It's going to be focused on economic growth. And it is going to be that engine of economic growth that puts Canada 
in a continued strong fiscal position. We only have about 20 seconds left here. Are, is it your intention as finance minister to increase uh, health transfers to the provinces? We, as we outlined today, have been spending a heck of a lot of money quite appropriately to support the provinces in the fight against COVID-19. And we're certainly going to continue to do that. Will that kind of spending be permanent and legislated in transfers? As I said, we have spent a lot of money supporting the provinces in the fight against COVID-19, and we're going to keep doing it. All right. Uh, Deputy Prime Minister, Finance Minister Christian Freeland, good to talk to you. Let's talk again sometime. Good to talk to you, too. Take care. All right. Lots of reaction for you tonight. Let's start with uh, the leader of the official opposition, Aaron O'Toole. He joins me for our coverage this evening. Okay, Mr. O'Toole, what's your reaction to what you heard today from Christian Freeland? Well, we were hoping to hear a plan, Peter, and there's, there's no plan. And as you know, for weeks we've been asking about the plan for vaccines. That's what our economy needs to survive in the pandemic. Other economies are going to be getting it in the next few days. The Liberals won't even give a number. So the, the two things we wanted to get some clarity on was full-scale deployment of rapid tests to keep our economy moving as much as possible and vaccines to let us know when we've rounded the corner with COVID-19. We can't get an, uh, an answer on those things, and they're both critical for our economic sen uh, success in the short, medium, and long term. Hmm. Okay. Uh, so, look, there. Let, let's talk about what it is in there. Is there anything in there you think is a good move forward uh, in dealing with the pandemic? I think there is one thing in there that's great, Peter, is the childcare plan, which I introduced in June during the Conservative leadership race. Uh, they, they basically took exactly what I proposed and implemented it. And uh, so that, that is a good point. I think this, this pandemic, uh, the limitations on childcare has had family scrambling. You know, my wife and I, we have young kids. We've always, we've done this juggle ourselves. So that more direct support uh, through the Canada Child Benefit on a, on a pandemic basis is something that was good. But there's, there's no plan for some of the, the huge industries suffering like tourism and others. They, they mention that, but no details on it. Uh, the spending is, is gargantuan and no plan to eliminate it. She is using now terms like guardrails, suggesting that they'll keep spending in sort of a huge fashion as long as interest rates are low, but that's risky to Canadians and, and to our children. So we're, we're very troubled that after almost 18 months plus of no budget, we had basically a mini budget with no details in it. So we're pretty disappointed overall. Her, her point on the guardrails is that, look, we'll get another fiscal anchor at some point and the guardrails will sort of keep us on track uh, till we get to that point, till we decide sort of what the cutoff point is for increased spending uh, when the time is to wind it down. And, and I guess uh, her point being, look, it's, it's better to spend too much than to spend too little during a pandemic. And uh, so, you know, if, if, if you were prime minister right now, how would you be dealing with this notion of needing to spend more to do whatever it takes to get people through this or start winding it down? Well, if I prime minister, we'd be getting vaccines like all the other countries have. I wouldn't have put all of our eggs in a basket with China. That's what the Trudeau government did. You, you heard this right. Your viewers you can't possibly be right. There was a CanSino deal that once that fell apart in August, the government was left without a serious plan, particularly to manufacture vaccine here in Canada. So I wouldn't have let that happen. We would have had rapid tests. There would have been much more accountability, Peter. And the spending, we've supported many of the spending. The, the, the CERB program, the wage subsidy, we actually pushed for it to be 75%. We pushed for changes to the rent program for small businesses. The Trudeau government prorogued Parliament 
before they actually help small businesses. Remember that, the, the bill they just introduced should have been six months ago. So we've supported spending to help people, but a lot of the spending wasn't smart. You know, we could have helped small businesses and farms and others if we'd not spent money to, to stay, stay home for students, if we'd increase Canada summer jobs, for example. So there has to be smart spending and there has to be a plan to get into reasonable fiscal waters. We, we are basically guaranteeing a prolonged recession uh, with the Trudeau-Freeland plan, and they don't seem to mind. The guardrails mean they say, well, interest rates are low, we're gonna spend away the next generation's future. So we need to make sure spending goes to people and to preserving jobs, uh, not just spending for the sake of spending. Where, where there is spending, and, and, and one, uh, let me talk about one item with you in particular, and this, this $1 billion fund for improving conditions in long-term care homes in the country, but there are strings attached. The federal government uh, says it'll have to approve the spending plans of the provinces on how they plan to use this money uh, to deal with improving uh, safety conditions and improving protections in these long-term care nursing homes. Uh, why do you think that's the wrong approach? Well, because that's not how our constitution is structured, and it's also paternalistic. In fact, maybe the provinces should assess how Mr. Trudeau has done on approving rapid tests and vaccines. I'd give him an F. And so the trouble here is Mr. Trudeau is playing with the lives of our seniors by holding back money with setting conditions in areas that aren't his jurisdiction. But, but are All you satisfied with how the provinces have handled the long-term care crisis? Uh, they had a crisis that was much more acute because the Trudeau government was two months late on the border, Peter. So each province does things differently. I've lived across this entire country when I served in the military. The, the programs and way long-term care is structured in, in Nova Scotia versus Quebec versus British Columbia, totally different. So why would we suspect that a bureaucracy in Ottawa would know better than Victoria or Halifax or Quebec or Toronto? It, it, it's this Ottawa knows best approach of Mr. Trudeau. Trudeau, he fails on the things under his own jurisdiction, rapid tests, vaccines, and then interferes in the provinces who are doing their best amidst a pandemic. So this is a time for collaboration, not for confrontation. Okay. So that was totally unacceptable. Your time's running out. I know you got to go, but just very quickly, if I can get a quick answer on this, they're going to spend up to $100 billion over three years to, to sort of create the, a fairer, greener economy. Uh, what do you think that money is going to be for? I mean, they've talked about childcare uh, and other things. Uh, what do you think of that? Well, they should have details, Peter. You know, this is what worries me about this government. This, we're in the midst of a crisis. This isn't a time for experimentation and, and buzzwords by consultants. We need every industry in our country, resource industries, small business, a blue-collar, unionized work settings, manufacturers. We need every cylinder of our engine firing. We need people to get back to work okay. so we can reduce some of the support programs. I don't see a plan for this. And whenever they get into this sort of uh, Ottawa knows best, we're going to design the economy of the future, that should be a warning bell that Canada is headed in the wrong direction. Aaron O'Toole, thanks for your time tonight. Take care. Thank you, Peter. Well, let's continue now with reaction to the economic update and bring in NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Uh, Mr. Singh, good to see you again. Thanks for being good here. Uh, so what's your assessment of this economic update? Well, on the three key things that we were looking for, you know, this Liberal government looks like they're unwilling to make the wealthiest pay their fair share, unwilling to go after the pandemic profiteering, the excess profits made by large corporations. They haven't put in place the sector-specific supports for the hardest-hit sectors like 
uh, aerospace, the airline workers, those who work in, in repair and maintenance, uh, the work, those who are the flight attendants, nor did they put in place a sector-specific support that's tied to jobs. And finally, when we look at the vaccines that the Liberal government has announced are going to be very far down the road, uh, people need to know that there's more help for more people long term. And the Liberals, instead of announcing that, have announced uh, cuts to the help that people need. And we were hoping for announcements on creating jobs through investing in uh, clean technologies, in fighting the climate crisis. And again, on that, they're relying heavily on the climate bank, which has shown to be a failure in the past. Yeah costs a lot, but very little projects out the door. So all in all, it seems a failed opportunity to really give Canadians some hope in a difficult time. Where did, where did you see the cuts for people uh, people who need help? I mean, the, the government's making the case, they look, they're going to increase the wage subsidy uh, from uh, 65% to 75% into the new year. They're, they claim to be putting more money into the pandemic relief. Well, if you look at their support year over year as they project in the economic uh, snapshot, uh, if you look at the year-over-year -year projections, they're projected to cut help to people after the first uh, year or so. Uh, we know that the recovery is going to take years, and we know that absent any help right now, there is a clear K-shaped recovery happening, where the richest companies, your Amazons, Walmarts, Netflix, Google, have seen massive profits, some of them record profits, but small businesses, everyday folks, working class people have seen their economic situations go downwards, go into a worse and worse position. Absent long-term sustained investments in people, in social programs like healthcare, in the supports that people need, we're going to see this K-shaped recovery continue, and the wealthiest are sure going to do fine, but everyone else is going to suffer. I want to pick up on some of these other issues in a moment, but let me let me jump sure. ahead just a little bit. Uh, this is there are measures in here that will require legislation. They spend money, they increase taxes, uh, some of these provisions. So not sure we ever vote on on the whole economic update itself, but portions of it uh, I think will require uh, uh, the approval of Parliament. Are you prepared to support the government on what you've seen in this update? Well, what we've done throughout this pandemic is we take each negotiation as we have it and we fight to make sure we deliver help to people. And we'll give you updates as we go along and let you know where the negotiations are. But right now, our plan is there are a lot of things that need changing. There are a lot of different approaches we want to take. We want to make sure that people are centered in the response. And with this economic update, we don't see the, the type of focus on people that we'd like to see. So we'll negotiate, we'll fight hard, and as those negotiations happen, we'll keep you updated. But as, based on what you've seen uh, so far, without some kind of change, this is not something you could support. Well, they haven't put forward the things that we wanted to see. And so I can clearly indicate that the things that we wanted to be there are not there. But when it comes to negotiations, we will let you know as those happen, and we'll continue to fight to deliver the help that people need. All right. We, we, um, we have seen uh, the government sort of looking down the road a little bit here post-pandemic and talking about uh, more consultations on a national child care system with a plan uh, they say will, will come to us in the budget. Uh, what do you think of that approach in terms of essentially taking the pandemic as an opportunity to uh, remake, uh, to some extent, uh, the economy we'll have going forward after the pandemic? Well, I would look at that as a, as a positive sign if it wasn't uh, completely missed out in terms of their actions. We put forward a motion in Parliament that was unanimously supported that said to keep the existing childcare spaces alone, 
we need an injection of $2 billion. Well, absent that investment, the Liberals have not put that forward. They broke that promise in this economic update. Then it doesn't seem very meaningful to me that they're going to talk about a plan when they haven't actually followed through on what they promised to do in the unanimous motion. They voted for it as well, to, to bring in an injection of $2 billion. When they break their word on a motion to help keep the childcare spaces we need, I don't really believe their commitment to expand to get to universal childcare. So it's not very believable given that they've broken their own word. Okay, what about uh, there is a, uh, they've created this billion dollar fund uh, to help deal with uh, the crisis in long term care homes across the country, but they want to tell the provinces, you know, uh, what, how their spending plans need to look to, for them to qualify for the money. Uh, what do you think of that approach? Well, there are some checks and balances in that, and that's good to see that there are some strings attached that require a plan, a financial plan, in terms of how the money is going to be spent. Uh, we're still concerned about a couple of things. One is the for-profit system. Absent uh, any movement on for-profit, we are worried that public money will go to long-term care centers that are for-profit, meaning some of that money might end up in the pockets of the shareholders or the CEOs, something that no Canadian thinks is the right thing to do. So that's one of our concerns. And also, it's taken the government months to deliver funding for long-term care. We knew right after the first wave that long-term care residents were the hardest hit, that our seniors, our loved ones, our vulnerable populations were the hardest hit. Then the second wave happened. Uh, to have waited this long to deliver specific funding for long-term care is pretty inexcusable. Uh, let's finish up on this. There are, uh, uh, there's no plan to sort of, you've seen the deficit numbers and the debt numbers, no plan to rein in that spending. In, in fact, the plan is to increase that spending uh, over time. Does any of that worry you, you that there's no plan to say, okay, uh, here's how we plan to get back to balance at some point, or here are the fiscal anchors we're going to build in to put checks and balances on spending. Is that important to you? Well, I am concerned about debt and deficit, and I did notice in their plans they actually are planning to reduce the spending on programs. If you look into years two and three, they start indicating a cut to the help that goes out to people. Uh, I'm deeply concerned about that because if there's no plan to increase revenue, then Liberals and Conservatives will cut the help that people need, and that will only make the K-shaped recovery worse. That means that people who need help won't get it, and they will be in a worse position. So what we're proposing is, this is an opportunity to build back better. To do that, we need some revenue. And to increase revenue, the only place it makes sense is to ask those who have profited massively off this pandemic, like we did in World War, look in the World Wars, look at a profiteering, a pandemic profiteering tax, excess profits made off of the pandemic should be taxed at a higher rate, and also look at taxing those that have extreme wealth. These are real concrete measures that can increase revenue to help us pay for the programs that we need. And, and I am worried about debt and deficit. I'm worried that it's going to result in cuts to the help that people need at a time when they need more and more supports. All right. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, thanks again for your time. Take care. Thank you. Well, the Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchet took issue with uh, the Trudeau government's offer in the economic update of assistance in the health sector, specifically uh, for long-term care homes, calling it too little too late and an intrusion in a provincial jurisdiction. The most vulnerable are the elders, and it contains nothing. The most vulnerable are in the hospitals and long care facilities. And in order to help them, Justin Trudeau says, you have to renounce your jurisdiction. You have to submit to the authority of the federal government. And it is not the argument of an independentist. 
because I believe every prime minister with Canada has heard says the same thing today. And a few days before a conference between the prime minister of Canada and the primes of the provinces and of Quebec, the prime minister says through the voice of Mrs. Freeland that he intends to impose conditions before coming to help those who are the most in need of some kind of support through healthcare, which is the jurisdiction of the provinces and of Quebec. Annemie Paul is the leader of Canada's Green Party, and she is with me now. Uh, Ms. Paul, good to see you again. Let, let's start with your reaction to the fiscal update today. Uh, did you hear what you wanted to hear from Christopher Freeland? You know, every time we have a statement like this, it's an opportunity to communicate real vision uh, for the future post-pandemic. And while there are some elements in there that are, are nice to see, it's not a comprehensive, coherent plan for our future. And that's really what this moment demands. What was missing from it? What was missing was any indication that we're going to have a climate plan. What was missing was the um, intention of bringing long-term care under the Canada Health Act, uh, truly bringing in universal child care and not just sending it back to committee and for conversation yes, yet again. A real plan for completing our social safety net and also getting us to net zero as quickly as possible. That's really what I wanted to see. You talked about uh, ahead of the, uh, uh, the economic update about the need to hear a message of, of hope and vision. I think you've, you've touched on, on what's lacking in the vision part. Um, what about the hope part? We are still dealing with a very serious pandemic. Uh, the government did announce some more supports and, and some more spending. Were you satisfied with what you heard on that front? The supports are absolutely the right thing to do, and the Green Party will always be there to work with the other parties to make sure that we get through this pandemic uh, as, as well as we can. Uh, but what we need to do now to make sure that we're not back in this position in the future is really talk about what comes next. There's the light at the end of the tunnel. We're talking about a vaccine uh, that begins distribution next year, early next year, which means what comes next? Uh, that's the part that I want to hear more about. We're one of the few um, OECD countries that isn't already far down the road in terms of our post-pandemic recovery plan. And so that's really, uh, that's really the missing piece, and, and we can do both. We can have a strong response while at the same time planning uh, for the uh, pandemic recovery. Uh, the, uh, the finance minister did today talk about, uh, uh, at least to some extent, and, and I, I know it doesn't go as far as you said uh, you had hoped it would. She mm -hmm. talked about, uh, again, uh, a national child care plan after some consultations, and maybe we'll get more about that uh, in the budget coming up. Didn't hear anything about uh, pharmacare. Uh, is, is that a big failing uh, from your point of view? I would just say in general, whether you're talking about the lack of mention of guaranteed livable income, uh, the, um, the reintroduction of national pharmacare plans, and the reintroduction of a commitment to national childcare, but without a plan, uh, that all the people who work in those areas will tell you that all that is left now is leadership and action. And so if uh, the government is not producing that, then they're really not living up to what I said, which is that the ambition uh, that should match uh, the challenges of this moment. And so the Green Party can do that, and uh, we're hoping that people will take another look at our policies. We propose strategies for all of those social programs. Uh, there has been some criticism, of course, of um, some of the spending plans of the government from some quarters, and the fact that uh, we didn't hear much today about 
uh, fiscal anchors and, and how to rein in spending when the time comes. And uh, Greens have always boasted about being fiscally responsible and prudent. So um, what about that today? Are you, how concerned are you that there's really no plan to, to rein in spending uh, of up to $100 billion, uh, the finance minister says, over the next three years? Well, the most fiscally responsible thing that we can do now is really to plan for a green recovery. And again, this is why most of our OECD peers have already started down that road. It is the greatest economic opportunity of our lifetime. It is the thing that is going to provide us with the short-term jobs that we need to kickstart our economy and the long-term jobs that we need to secure our economic future. And so I completely support spending if it's going to help us get us through this pandemic and if it's going to set us up for the future. It's really all a question of where we put the money. Um, we're investing in our future. It's the right thing to do now. We should have that scale of ambition. And if we do, then we actually are setting ourselves up uh, for a really strong, stable, certain economic future. I mean, you, 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 you wanted to hear more detail, but I'm, I'm not sure that a fiscal update is often the place where we hear that kind of detail. That would, that would come in a budget. So uh, I guess I'm wondering how much slack you're prepared to cut the government between now and, a, and the next budget, which should be, um, by all accounts, sometime in February or March. Uh, when we would expect to hear more details. Are you, are you okay waiting till then? Well, we've been waiting already for quite a long time. Uh, this uh, government has been in place for six years now. And whether we're talking about uh, guaranteed livable income or the introduction of new universal programs or protecting uh, people living in long-term care facilities, these are all things that have been talked about and promised for years. Had they been in place, uh, we would have been much more protect protected during this pandemic. And given that it's entirely possible that uh, this session of Parliament is not going to survive to see most of the promises in the statement uh, put into place, the question then becomes who do people in Canada truly have confidence in? Who do they really trust to actually take promises into action? And uh, I think they have to question whether this is the government to do it. I believe that uh, we are much better placed uh, to do that. All right, Green Party leader enemy Paul. Uh, good Thank to talk you. to you again tonight. Take care. You too, Peter. Take care. Well, as we reported earlier, there's some targeted financial help for hard-hit sectors of the economy in the fiscal update, including hotels, uh, tourism, and the airline industry. But a lot of that airline industry help is aimed at smaller airlines or at, you know, the regional carriers or uh, for airport infrastructure programs and so on. Big airlines, they've been left out. Mike McNanny is the president and CEO of the National Airlines Council of Canada. It represents uh, those big airlines. And Mr. McNanny, first of all, thanks for joining me this evening. Uh, so uh, what's in the fiscal update that responds to the crisis in the airline industry? Oh, it's a good question. Uh, there, there, are, there are some elements in there that, 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 you, uh, that you saw in terms of, uh, of airports. There's some regional uh, initiatives in there. We don't know the particular details of them. Uh, they're quite vague at this point. What we had hoped to see was a, a clear plan uh, from the government and, and a clear recognition from the government that a stable aviation sector is going to be absolutely crucial for our overall economic recovery. And we have seen other jurisdictions now have invested approximately $170 billion U.S. in their respective uh, aviation communities, precisely because of the role aviation has to play to further their own economic recovery. So we had we had hoped that we would see a little bit more direction from the government uh, as far as uh, its support for the sector overall. Uh, and we had also uh, hoped that we would have seen 
uh, more direction in terms of the plan for uh, uh, rapid testing and Look, the rollout of rapid testing. Yeah, there, there's a line in the fiscal update uh, that the government has, you know, has played before Canadians before, which is, you know, we're we're currently in the middle of negotiations with airlines about providing refunds to Canadians who had their flights canceled mm. uh, because of the pandemic. So, um, you know, let, let's put those two things together. Is that what this is about today? That you know, no help for the big airlines. Do you get that settled? And that seems to be what the message is from the government today. Well, actually, I think the airlines are uh, initiating uh, reimbursements. Uh, there's been a several announcements on that over the past uh, several weeks. Mm-hmm. And I you know, don't speak to any individual carriers' activities. Obviously, I speak at an industry level. So that activity has, has been underway. Uh, in terms of, the, I can't remember the exact phrasing the government used. I did, I did write it down here, so if you let me look at my note briefly. Uh, it's working on processes with major airlines uh, on financial assistance. That is the same language uh, that, was, uh, that has been used off and on over the past uh, couple of months. Uh, in terms of why we are, are still, why the government is still using that language and why we're still waiting to move forward, uh, they, they are best placed to answer that question. Well, what kind of conversations are you having with them? I mean, uh, you've, you've been putting out, I mean, uh, what did I see in numbers? Is what's, what passenger traffic's down 86%? Uh, is that, you know... Uh, if, if, if it was 86%, it would be a bit of a recovery. It's uh, it, it, overall year, month to month, year over year, it's down approximately 90%. Right. And capacity in the marketplace has been reduced uh, 80%. So we, we ostensibly shut down 80% of, of the business. And we've lost now, uh, the latest figures I had seen, we've lost now about 85% of our connectivity. And that's as a result of carriers drawing down their schedules, eliminating service uh, in certain regions of the country, and basically every region of the country has been But do you think it. there's a connection here between the government saying, look, we're still negotiating with airlines about how to refund these passengers, and, and that you're not going to get any help till that gets settled? Some are doing it, but it sounds like the government needs to see a formal plan where everybody's doing it. Well, in terms of what what thinking the government is doing and why it hasn't moved forward again, you're going to have to put that to them. But uh, the public statements have been made uh, by carriers uh, in terms of reimbursement. Uh, and the, the government continues to uh, utilize the phrasing it is using for whichever reasons uh, it is deeming fit to do so. Okay. How does the support for airlines in this country compare to what's being done in other countries? It doesn't. Uh, it just flat out doesn't compare. Uh, the, the overall figures so far... As I said, about 170, 173 billion U.S. Uh, that has consisted of a variety of, of mechanisms. We have been asking since, I guess, midsummer, uh, actually, and earlier uh, into the spring for low interest loans and loan guarantees. Uh, we've also been recommending that the government address the challenges that exist in other aspects of uh, the aviation community. So, Nav Canada, for example, we we experienced a 29.9 percent tax increase. In September, for air navigation services, as as Nav Canada tries to deal with its precipitous drop in revenue as well, so we think that and that, that is ostensibly a government uh, a creation of government legislation. So we have been asking for the government to address liquidity uh, broadly within the sector. You have seen other uh, other countries have moved on a variety of means for direct assistance, and we are now seeing Canadian carriers losing market share. Uh, to these foreign carriers who are increasing their capacity uh, internationally, right, which and, raises and the med- prospect of a, a much deeper and longer-lasting hit, even if you even after the pandemic, right? Once, yes, yes. Once you lose that, yeah. that some of those roots and some of that competition, it's very hard to get it back. All right, you're, you're fighting from backward. Yeah, yeah you're you're fighting from a, a downward. Position. I have to leave yes. it there, but uh, for the moment, uh, the, the airline industry is still waiting uh, for direct help from the government. Uh, Mr. McNanny, thanks for your time tonight. Thank you.
Well, the economic, economic update promises continued help for the provinces to manage the COVID-19 outbreak in long-term care homes. Key to that is a promise of $1 billion in funding to the provinces to protect people in the long-term care homes. Uh, is that good enough? Laura Tamblin-Watts is the president and CEO of CanAge, a seniors advocacy organization. She joins me now. Uh, Laura Tamblin-Watts, good to see you again. Uh, how satisfied are you with the measures that you heard in this fiscal update from Christian Freeland today? It's a good day for seniors, and really we're starting to see some significant investment in long-term care. So it's important to know that this billion dollars is for really COVID response, which can help with some bricks and mortars problems. And then there's an additional promise of national long-term care quality standards, which currently doesn't have money tethered to it, but we look forward to that in a future budget. The, the money, the $1 billion fund that uh, the government uh, talked about today uh, does have some strings attached. The government, they want to see spending plans. They, essentially, the provinces will view this as the government dictating how the money is going to be spent. So, you know, we could be in for a bit of a war over this. Uh, how do you hope this thing goes? We've been asking for strings to be attached, and we're actually very pleased to see that it does require that it be used for these purposes. Historically, we have seen health transfers go to provinces for seniors care, like we saw in 2017 when ostensibly millions of dollars were transferred for home care, but no real results were uh, realized that anyone could actually touch and feel. So we're very pleased to see these strings attached. And I think that some provinces, and I mean, historically, we're looking at Quebec and Alberta in particular, may be concerned about that. But I think they're going to have to answer to their constituents. You know, their hearts were breaking and their hands were ringing, asking for federal funding for long-term care. I think it will be hard for them to say that they don't they don't want to use this fund. Right. It may not come to that. It may end up being a, a standoff over negotiations over what a spending plan looks like. Uh, you know, I, I mean, uh, in terms of this measure and other measures that the government has, has put forward, uh, some of that outlined in this plan, what else can you tell us about, uh, you know, how, how this is a, a step forward uh, for not just long-term care homes, but for senior care in this country? You know, we've needed significant investment in long-term care, and this is a start to what we need to see for things like national long-term care standards, but it really can actually make a difference for infection prevention control. Every day that we don't have these funds, we're losing lives, you know, whether it's partners, spouses, friends, neighbors, parents. People are dying in long-term care, and it's not the time to be pointing jurisdictional fingers at anyone. It's the time to invest this needed money in the quality care supports that we know it has to go to. Infection prevention and control, testing, PPE, they come at a very high burn rate. And on the whole, long-term care facilities have been spending two to three times the amount of money that government has provided for infection prevention and control. In many ways, this money is a bit of a bailout for long-term care homes, but there's enough money to make some really positive investments as well. Would you have liked to hear more perhaps about, uh, we didn't hear much about uh, health transfers and uh, sort of, uh, we know the provinces are asking for more funds that would, uh, they say they would pour into long-term care and everything else that the government needs to, federal government needs to provide, uh, needs to enrich those those transfers that could be used for all kinds of things the, the provinces say, including uh, better pay for long-term care workers in those facilities, all of those things. Uh, so, you know, this this is a move forward, you would say, but how much more is still to be done to try and uh, 
correct some of these deficiencies in the long-term care system? We think of this money as kind of emergency COVID money. It's not actually going to fix the entire long-term care system. And that's why we need to implement any one of our myriad reports on how to support seniors in Canada across the health and housing continuum. We know how to do that. That's going to be a next step. I think of this as an emergency response, which is long overdue to supporting COVID-19 and long-term care. It doesn't take away from the need for federal transfers for health. It doesn't take away from the need to have a proper human resources strategy, but it does nudge in those directions. So it's a good investment. What we have seen though is historically when the federal government has targeted money for seniors, it doesn't usually end up going there. It goes into acute care pockets. So this is important that the money be tethered and based on what we've seen in long-term care and the number of lives lost, I think it's very hard to say that this money isn't needed. All right, Laura Tamblin-Watts, uh, thank you uh, for joining us tonight. Uh, good to talk to you again, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you, you too. Fiscal guardrails will help us establish when the stimulus will be wound down. The government will track progress against several related indicators, recognizing that no one data point is a perfect representation of the health of the economy. These indicators include the employment rate, total hours worked, and the level of unemployment in the economy. These data-driven triggers will tell us when the job of building back from the COVID-19 recession is accomplished, and we can bring one-off stimulus spending to an end. When the economy has recovered, the time-limited stimulus will be withdrawn and Canada will resume its long-standing, prudent and responsible fiscal path based on a long-term fiscal anchor, which we will outline when the economy is more stable. My next guest was Canada's first parliamentary budget officer. Kevin Page is the founding president of the Institute for Fiscal Studies and Democracy, and he's with me now. Mr. Page, good to see you again. Good to be with you, Peter. This is a fiscal update delivered at a, a time really like no other. Uh, what stood out for you and what you heard from Christa Freeland, what she delivered today? Uh, a number of things stood out. I mean, the numbers are still shocking because they're just, uh, we've not seen deficits and debt, you know, uh, and you know, this magnitude, and we continue to add to these deficits and debt. I think the strategy is interesting. It's kind of, they move, uh, there's still the focus is on the pandemic, but there's this, this small move towards, um, you know, the recovery. And this idea of forward guidance uh, around fiscal policy, really telling people that they could expect to see stimulus in the 70 to $100 billion range over the next three years without really setting a fiscal anchor or without really defining what that stimulus could look like. Like, is, is any, to your knowledge, is any other country budgeting that way? Or, or I know we're in a pandemic, so lots of things are different, but uh, is, can, does Canada stand out? Yeah, I think we're going to stand out, and uh, I think we stand out for different reasons. One, we stand out already when you look at the size of our deficit and debt, just and you compare the year-over-year -year shock. Canada is, uh, is probably one of the largest uh, countries with respect to providing fiscal support. So we've seen this really massive increase uh, in the deficit from just a, around just under 2% last year, 1920, to almost, you know, 17.5% in 
in 2020-21. And then, yeah, I think the other point, really starting to provide this sort of guidance that we're going to, you know, the Canada is saying we're going to provide fiscal policy support that's going to be ongoing beyond the pandemic. And, you know, these rough order of magnitudes, I think the IMF would be happy with this approach, but I honestly, Peter, don't know of another country that's laid it out in a document this way. Okay, and so, uh, I mean, I'm, I don't know if this is the right way to frame it, but is, is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing or something we just haven't seen before? Yeah, I, I think it's a good thing for probably a few reasons. One, it is really, I think there's like where the economy is hurting right now, um, be, you know, because of the pandemic, but... The other side of it is just like the investment has just you know plateaued or fallen off. You know, businesses don't want to invest in this environment. Uh, there's just too much of uncertainty. And again, some of that is linked to the pandemic. But you know, we have monetary policy where we provide forward guidance. So businesses know that these interest rates are going to stay low. I think you know, for businesses and households to know that the federal government's going to provide additional strong supports for a number of years. And, you know, they could potentially be constrained by something the minister calls guardrails, but it's still a pretty significant ongoing support. I think it, it, it could be quite positive from the point of view of kind of just providing a transparency and, and, bol and bolstering confidence going forward. Yeah, I mean, how long can the federal government, uh, you know, go without reintroducing a fiscal anchor uh, before international bond agencies, for instance, look at uh, look at all of that and say, hmm, we got a lot of questions about that. And they look at possibly lowering Canada's credit rating. Yeah, I think that discussion almost starts right away. Like, even with this update, I think part of it, I mean, this document really frames that conversation around, it provides a sort of medium-term planning framework. Uh, it really is quite you know, honest with providing different scenarios. There's lots of uncertainty, and some of these scenarios are negative, so they're not hiding uh, you know, potential economic truth going forward. Um, but I think, yeah, you know, I mean, the issue of the anchor, I think that's got to be part of the debate around the size of the stimulus. And I think so that this is a pre-budget consultations discussion now. And we've not we've never really had this before, not in my lifetime. Right. Um, so I, I guess on the you know, you, you touched on it. We could see uh, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 billion dollars in uh, spending rolling out. And it, and it occurs to me that. When you listen to the government talk, it's it's targeted spending about getting more women in the economy, about a child care plan, about a green economy. And to some people, that'll sound like re-engineering an economy, picking winners, picking losers. Is there is there a message for business in this country about what's been laid out in this in this document today? Yeah, it's um, I mean, I think businesses and I think, you know, um, future debt holders are going to want to know um, how much of that you know, stimulus is really going to be really capital investment. So if we're deficit financing all of this, like what proportion of it really is capital related as opposed to a lot of those programs that you referred to, which will be, you know, we will, as you know, as citizens consume those tax dollars, but they'll have to be deficit financed by future generations. So I think like that, it, again, it's a conversation that we're going to be having. Um, you know, why not talk about fiscal anchors in this document? I think the minister, for some reason, maybe following the advice of the prime minister, they feel that in the context of the pandemic, there's just too much uncertainty to talk about what level of debt to GDP is appropriate. But I think, again, in these numbers, when you build in the stimulus, like you're getting debt to GDP numbers in the 55 to 58 percent range. And, you know, a year ago, we were sitting at 31. Right. But the government uh, looks at, as you know, the government looks at that number, the debt to GDP ratio of 55 plus and says that's okay we're still better than a lot of countries in the world we can still borrow money uh at that level and still be okay 
Yeah, and, and I think there's some truth to that, that, you know, we're adding enormously to the stock of debt, but the carrying cost of the debt is not really moving because, you know, interest rates, the effective rates uh, is very close to zero. Uh, it was an unusual historic environment in its own right. But I think the document doesn't provide a lot of scenarios like what if we were to see a tripling or quadrupling of interest rates over the next five years? What if inflation returned and brought back higher interest rates? Right. Just how heavy would that debt? That's not in the document. All right. Uh, still a lot to, to, to parse in all of this in the days ahead. But uh, Kevin Page, thanks for your early perspective tonight. Thank you, Peter. We know that COVID-19 is rolling back many of the gains Canadian women have fought for and won in my lifetime. Yeah. That is why today, as part of our commitment to an action plan for women in the economy, we are laying the foundation for a Canada-wide early learning and child care system. Okay, let's get the perspective now of three colleagues from the Parliamentary Press Gallery. Susan Delacorte is a columnist with the Toronto Stars. Well, Denis Bellavance is the Parliamentary Bureau Chief for La Presse. And John Iveson is a columnist with the National Post Parliamentary Bureau Chief as well for Post Media. Good to see you all. Uh, I, I don't know if anybody else has ever done an economic update uh, virtually, but uh, the, the whole process itself was, was interesting enough today. But uh, here we are. So, Susan, let me start with you. First impressions of what you got from uh, Christian Freeland today. What do you make of it? Um, there was, uh, this is going to be sound like one of those Weasley journalist answers, but there was a lot more to it than I expected, but a lot less. I was intrigued with the blanks. I was intrigued with what they left out. It looked very strategic. Such as? Um, well, there's nothing in there about the provinces and healthcare. The prime minister is due to meet the first ministers within days. Uh, they have been very clear about wanting more health care money whenever that meeting starts. The Prime Minister agreed to that as a topic of conversation. And he's only walking into that meeting with uh, a billion for long-term care, well overdue, um, we would say. With, with a bunch of federal strings attached to how the money gets dispersed as well. Right, a talk of national standards. Mm. So uh, that's going to be an interesting meeting. Um, there are all kinds of... There's a stimulus program to come and a Build Back Better, or what Pierre Polyev might want to call the Great Reset. There is something planned for the recovery, but details right. to follow. And you could say that's because they don't know. You could also say it's because they want to negotiate that with the, the likes of the NDP and other opposition uh, parties. Right, I think so Jagmeet Jug, Singh, Singh made it clear in this program that uh, there's going to be some negotiating because he doesn't like what he sees. So if there's too many things missing from it, if we do get confidence votes around this. John, let me turn to you. Uh, what did you see in what Christopher Freeland delivered today? Well, you know, you're just talking about a $100 billion black hole. You know, I think that the, uh, the deficit, $381 billion, we saw, we saw uh, the debt going up by, you know, an equivalent amount so you feel like you're almost through the first phase of the storm. Um, you know, the projection was that next year the debt would be 121 billion, then it would go down to 50 billion, and, and we'd get back to somewhere close to normalcy within four or five years. And then you get to the part which says, forget all that because we're going to add another 100 billion to it over, a, over three years, and this is going to take the debt to GDP ratio up 50 billion dollars 
uh, sorry, 50, over 50% right. every year. And the, de the deficit to $136 billion a year on average. So I, I, I kind of got caught in this recoil where, uh, where I thought, well, that, that looks not so bad. And then I thought, yeah, it really is bad. Right, because, well, that's your fault. You kept reading it. If you had just stopped reading, you would have been fine. I should have stopped halfway through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My only disappointed. I mean, the $13 billion that they said for, for spending now, fair enough. A lot of it was for home re retrofit, for universal broadband, things that are actually going to contribute to the growth of the economy. I think the concern is that the $100 billion, they're now going, they said, we're going to spend $100 billion. We're now going to go out and find $100 billion worth of things to spend it on. It's like an episode of Yes Minister. Yeah. Uh, Joel Denis, let, get, let me get your first impressions here. What stood out for you? Well, for the first time, we have some projections for the next five years. So that's new. And I think this shows that the government is intent on trying to reassure markets that the situation will improve over time. And that was a key message from the finance minister. Yes, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. It may get worse before it gets better, but we've seen uh, the light at the end of the tunnel. And as uh, Susan mentioned, there are some blanks left in this uh, fiscal um, uh, economic update because it's going to be left to the budget and the budget will probably be the launching pad for the next federal election. So expect major more announcements in the next federal budget. Yeah. Susan, let's talk a little bit more about that because that's that's clearly one of the main parts of what we heard today. Yes, there was more pandemic spending and some money here and there to, uh, to, to help uh, different Canadians at different industries. Some industries uh, still not getting help, that expected help, I think, in, in, in this economic update. It's still not there. But a lot of that focus is on uh, that building back better and a focus on childcare and, and women in the workforce. Um, how animated do you think that conversation becomes between now and the budget uh, as the government, this whole conversation about, about re-engineering an economy or this economic reset, however you want to frame it, uh, what do you expect to hear? I, I think it is going to get really interesting. I, I think it shows that the government decided quite a while ago uh, that it was not going to negotiate with Conservatives for this future. Uh, it is a very um, NDP, Green maybe a little bit of the block-friendly program. Uh, you're definitely seeing uh, things that the NDP has mentioned. I think Jagmeet Singh actually put up uh, a list of things that he wanted mm -hmm. today. So I think um, they're getting used to dancing with the New Democrats, so they may keep doing that. Um, so uh, some of these things were promised in the throne speech um, and promised in the 20. Was it 19 election or <laughs> a million years ago? So some of this is there's pharmacare in there. Yeah. Um, we are we are going to have a conversation about things that are going to make the left side of the liberal party very happy. But to John's point, uh, the, it's not going to make blue liberals very happy. But uh, this is very definitely a government that does want to do some <clears throat> socially active things. It was, I should say, as a shout out for my gender, it was the first kind of budget from Canada's first female woman cabinet minister. Yeah. And, first and finance she definitely, yeah. uh, finance minister, pardon me. Uh, and, uh, and she put her stamp on that too. John, John she, what, I mean, what, that was gonna, I was gonna get to that and you can work that into the same conversation around how you think the conversation goes on rebuilding and retooling an economy. But do we already know something different about Christian Freeland's approach to this than, than we got from Bill Morneau as long as he was there? Well, I don't know if there was, there was that much of an, a difference in approach. Obviously, Morneau 
and argued to rein in spending. And, and uh, Freeland is clearly not reining in spending. And if, obviously the left is going to be delighted with this. But the reality is the day that she announced this, this idea, this great uh, reset, Canada's, the jewel in Canada's artificial intelligence crown sold itself to a California company. And I think there are real concerns that going for gold, you don't stay in Canada. I mean, they, we're swimming in debt. We're relying on low interest rates. And I think if you rely on low interest rates and not durable economic growth, you're potentially in trouble. We've got a widening uh, trade deficit. Uh, Productivity is going down. Our exports are, are not performing thanks to natural resources being in the, in the doldrums. I mean, there are some real things to worry about in the Canadian economy right now. It's, as somebody said, more fragile than it's been since the 1930s. None of that registered in today's statement. Yeah. Joel Denis, let me talk. Uh, the, the Premier of Quebec has in many ways been leading the, uh, uh, the Premiers in the conversation around the, the, the need for more health transfers, uh, higher health transfers to the provinces. Um, there aren't going to be provinces. What, what they heard today, this billion-dollar fund to help with long-term care homes, as long as you submit your spending plans to the federal government and we approve those spending plans. Uh, how's that going to go over? Not very well. And I would remind you, Peter, that Mr. Legault is also the chairman of the Council of Federation. So he represents this year all the premiers. And the premiers have a clear demand that Ottawa do, does increase uh, transfer health transfers to the provinces by the tune of $28 billion. And as Susan mentioned, they will be meeting with the prime minister in the coming weeks, maybe next week or the week after, to discuss an increase in health transfers. So the deficit numbers that we heard today might be larger as a result of the meeting that Mr. Trudeau will have with the premiers. Uh, and I'd like to go back to the fact to this, that this is the first um, uh, economic update presented by Christopher Freeland as a woman, as the first woman finance minister. I was thinking, and how would Bill Morrow would, would have written that economic update today? And clearly, it would have been very different than what I think Madam uh, Freeland uh, table. She's an activist, she's a progressive, and she's a feminist, and she's not uh, 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 afraid to mention it and uh, show it in her uh, economic update. You know, if this is sort of a, a pre-budget water testing thing, Susan, we only got a little bit of time left, but quick answers from each of you. Uh, you know, Aaron O'Toole doesn't like it. Jagmeet Singh says he doesn't like it. He wants to make some changes. The Bloc doesn't like it. Uh, the Green Party uh, doesn't necessarily think it went far enough. So a lot of people are talking about uh, how much spending is taking place, and yet uh, two of the three opposition parties that can control the government's fate think maybe they didn't spend enough. So if you're going to go into an election campaign, uh, that's probably not a bad place to be, right? Yeah, I'm going to be watching the NDP again, as uh, as usual. I uh, the initial noises have been, of course, the Conservatives aren't. But uh, you, I, you, the what Jagmeet Singh told uh, told you, I think, is uh, a sign that some there's a lot of talking to go on before the end of the year and into next year. Yeah, this is an election platform and waiting, as well, Denis. Absolutely, and the fact that the government is already announcing a hundred billions. Uh, investment plan to re re kickstart the economy. This is going to be built around that. How do we spend $100 billion over the next three years to revive the economy? So that's a nice platform for the Liberal government. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts, John? Essentially, what we, the message would be, look, we, we didn't care about deficits in 2015 when we won. Now we don't care about them again uh, <laughs> if it means uh, you know putting money into the pockets of Canadians. At the end of the day, I don't think that's what people are going to be uh, judging their vote on. I mean, I think at the moment, the biggest existential threat to the Liberals is the, the vaccine rollout. I think if we, if we don't get a vaccine on time, 
uh, and other countries are getting it, not just the Americans, but if the Mexicans and the, the uh, Indians, and etc., are getting it, then none of this will make any difference. All right. Thank you all for your time tonight. Uh, take care, everybody. We'll talk again. Thank you, Peter. That's all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics from all of us here at CPAC. Thanks for watching. See you next time.